0: Hello and welcome to Counterpressed on The Ringer and Spotify. It's day 10 of the Women's World Cup. Congratulations, guys. You've made it to double digits in this tournament. I'm joined by Jesse Parker-Humphreys and Becky Taylor-Gill. Jesse, you have literally just got back from France, Brazil. How are you feeling? Because the vibes looked amazing, judging from Twitter and some of the videos I saw. Yeah, better the Brazilian fans were
1: better off the pitch than the Brazilian players were on the pitch. I think is is the <laughs> review. Um, it it was amazing actually. It, it was the most intensity I, I've seen. Obviously, I have I've gone to Australian game, but I felt like this was bigger excitement for for this one. There was there was bigger build up, and I think there was maybe with the Australian Nigeria one that I was at there was a sense that Australia expected to win that. Obviously they didn't, but this felt like people were genuinely bigging themselves out, up for one of the, the biggest games of the group stages. And I don't know if it quite lived up to that billing, uh, but yeah, the atmosphere in the side of the stadium was great.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about that because it was definitely a game that everyone was saying, this is the one I'm most excited for in these group stages. And maybe maybe that was what killed it is that it was slightly too overhyped. And and the first two games that both the first games that both of these teams had sort of warmed us up in different ways, I suppose. Yeah. Um, On today's show, we've got loads to get through because we've got to reflect on that massive game in Brisbane. Uh, We've also got to talk about Sweden absolutely demolishing Italy and those corner routines. And we also have a really great chat with Australian journalist Samantha Lewis, who chatted to us ahead of a huge game for the Matildas as they face Canada on Monday. So let's get into it after this. Yeah, that game in Group F that everyone had marked down as what could be one of the best of the tournament in the group stages. Brazil taking on France in Brisbane. And it was a massive win for France, really, because they had a, a poor first game against Jamaica. They didn't play well. They they get that draw and everyone was kind of feeling a little bit disappointed, a little bit deflated. Jesse, you were there, so... Give us a sense of what it was like in the stadium in terms of like how much of a lift that was for France compared to that opening game against Jamaica.
1: Well, I think the strange thing was, was that in the stadium, you wouldn't have felt like it was a lift for France because everyone there was was supporting Brazil. There was a very, very tiny pocket of French fans. Um, but obviously, it, it was a really big win. But I think what was strange about this game was... France probably could justifiably say they felt on top for most of it, but without ever actually having a huge amount of control. And then I think what was disappointing from a Brazilian perspective was that maybe we wanted to see them have some control and them have some attacking impetus. And really, they they offered very little. It it felt very reminiscent to me of large portions of that Finalissima game at Wembley um, in terms of... Brazil sort of wanting to sit back not wanting to make the most of what they had going forward, and then the opposition without having to really be exceptional finding the opportunities to go forward and I think that that's what we saw from France it definitely wasn't a display from them which made me think wow this is a team who who are ready to go on and and do really well in this competition it was it more just felt like when the opportunities came they were ready to take them and you know, Wendy Renard, especially, we know how important she's been for France at at World Cups and corners and headers in the box have been a big theme of today. And, you know, Renard was, was obviously part of that. So I don't think this game quite lived up to the billing in, in terms of what it could have been uh, in, in
0: attacking flair. But yeah, as you said, an important win for France in the end. Becky, you and I watched that Brazil-Panama game, I think, in the studio green room, and we were blown away by Brazil. So hyped. We felt like we were talking about on the pod about how it was a real throwback to proper Brazilian expressive creative football. I was really gutted that I felt like we got the old Brazil today, <laughs> which is just like a little bit stodgy, a little bit boring, and just not yeah, just not fun to watch. Yeah, I felt like it was a big crash
2: down to earth because after that game i was like they could win this they could do it marta's marta's final final tournament it's the story it's going to be amazing and then today i was just a bit like oh um and maybe that's a lesson in not getting too hyped about teams when they play a significantly uh smaller opposition i do think their goal did have some nice flair. I think that that first touch was lovely. Um, so I do think that magic is still there. They just couldn't find it as easily as they could against Panama.
0: Us getting overhyped about teams playing well. <laughs> Never. Absolutely not. Jesse, let's give France a bit of credit though because there were some key changes that created the moments for them. Selma Basher coming in after picking up that ankle injury in that warm-up game against Australia um, and she made a huge difference pretty quickly. And Kenza Dali starting, which was a surprise that she didn't start in that first game, came on, made an impact. Eve Perisset, obviously Chelsea, you know well, she also started. So there were some key changes that you saw the difference that they made and probably going forward will be what France need to do.
1: Yeah, I think some of them maybe work better than others. I thought Periset looked really really good actually in in terms of that fullback position and I thought she offered them a lot of solidity. Um it it was obviously interesting to see them sort of switch around and lacra go back into the centre back thing. It it almost does raise okay. the question of why you've started that way. The Kenza one I uh, yeah I thought she was good, but it was strange to see her sort of playing in this wider role. I don't know how that came across to, to you guys on the telly, but but definitely in the ground I felt like it was great to see on the pitch, but it felt like we weren't getting the most out of her. And in some ways I thought it was an interesting test of, of Renard's management because he's almost got these three very talented central midfielders in Sandy Telletti, Graschi Oro and Kenza Dali. And it felt like he was trying to fit them all in by putting Dali out wide. And obviously tonight they come away with the wind, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of going forward, I think that's an interesting question because I feel like he almost ducked a decision by by putting us sort of out wide. I don't know what you guys think.
0: Well it was interesting because I think everyone was so surprised to see Dali Darley- out wide on the ball so early on and, and and like being part of really nice link up play, Jonathan Pierce misidentified her, which, you know, isn't exactly the most shocking thing in the world when it comes to TV commentary. But at the same time, I think it just represented how sort of out of place on the pitch she was because you won't expect to see her there. But I actually thought in those tight spaces on the wing, she was pretty good in those areas. I mean, she's a very good player. So, you know, she, it's not like she's going to completely collapse because she's not played in, in the right position. But I thought it was kind of creative and interesting. And in that first half, when France absolutely dominated, I thought they got so much joy out of both widths on the pitch. Um, and obviously you had Salma, Salma Basha on the left um, and Dali creating that space on the right. And I actually thought that worked quite well. Now, would it be even more beneficial switching her more centrally Probably I don't know but I did like the way that he did that. I thought it was kind of fun and interesting. Um but in the long term, I don't know if it yeah is the best way to use her.
1: Well yeah, and and obviously I think by playing Diani in a front two with Lussamere which worked to perfect effect for that first goal, right? In terms of having, you know, Diony head on for Lussamere to head in, you you lose your obvious wide forward so you know France are looking to play in a different shape than maybe we'd expect them to if for example well even if you were talking about them at the Euros last year I think lots of people going into the Euros would have said Katoto up front Diani on the right Baltimore or Basha or whoever on the left and, and you see them in the front three that's not the case under Renard um and and to that extent maybe that frees up having someone who's not so much a natural winger um, to give the front two the space to to do basically whatever they want. And they've got very free roles in this system. I think my only question would be is how effective is that going to be potentially as we go further in the competition? Because I do feel like tonight we didn't really see France in a free-flowing, really exciting attacking sense. I think they made the most of what they got.
0: The big change for Brazil was Jay-Z coming into the starting lineup, and it has to be said, Jesse, it was a pretty anonymous performance. But I mean, she's not alone in not having a good game, but I think was it one successful completed pass in the first half? One successful cross in the second. She got substituted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty bad. Jessie's um, pu- pulling really
2: shocked faces. Well, not shocked. Disappointment I can't to not be living with the on stats. Your face.
1: Maybe disgust.
2: <laughs> what was
0: it like watching her in the stadium? Did you get a sense that like, is this is this girl even in this game, you know?
1: I didn't think it would come... Maybe that's why I was pulling that face. I don't think it came across quite as bad as the, the stats are, are reading out. But I felt like all of Brazil's attack was was pretty anonymous and the kind of exciting things that, that we'd seen in that first game just weren't there at all. And And this was always the question, right, about them as a team is that we know they've got the ability to play in a really attacking, exciting sense and we know they've got Mandro and Pierre Suntaga who's maybe going to go safety first and be ready to let them sit back. And it felt like in this game, which was an opportunity to really was an opportunity for them to really put their foot down, they didn't go for it. And I think that it's hard to blame JC in particular as opposed to like How they looked to go and play for the entire game. I I don't think anyone covered themselves in glory, particularly in terms of wanting to go forward and wanting to run the ball. And that tells me, I think, that their plan wasn't to really try and do that. And I think that just kind of reaffirms the fears about Brazil. I mean, fears is maybe a strong word, but, um, you know, the concerns about Brazil as to how they were going to be able to compete in this tournament. the first game was was the anomaly rather than the rule for them.
0: It was a, a really crucial win for France more than anything because they needed to really sort of like lift off their World Cup. I was feeling quite positive about them going to this tournament about what they could do and maybe we got pockets of, of that today. Jesse, how much do you think this tells us about what they might do going forward? Is this the beginning of their World Cup? Is it a small sort of snippet of their World Cup? Where do you think this leaves them going forward? I think having... Talked
1: about Brazil and how it was disappointing the way they didn't build on their first performance. I'd actually maybe say the opposite with with France. Not that I necessarily thought that this was leaps and bounds ahead of of where they were against Jamaica, but I did think it was interesting that Renard made changes. I thought those changes were broadly effective and they were broadly where they needed to be made. Um, And I think that's a good sign for them. And it is important to recognize that with this France team, They've gone through a number of years with a manager who famously nobody liked. Uh, They've then had someone new come in. They've had to adjust a lot in that time. And I think that opportunity to sort of take learnings on from games, make adjustments moving forward, and then sort of look to build relationships from there, I think that was something that you could potentially see tonight. I still think that France are maybe alongside England as one of the teams just so badly affected by injury that it almost becomes impossible to to judge how far they'll go like I think they looked fine I don't think they played particularly well um but it feels harsh to say that they were bad given the the quality of talent that they they are missing at this point in the tournament
0: Jesse you referenced this day being all about bad defending from corners. And we saw it in this with Wendy Renard's header in the second half. And actually, up until that point, Brazil had got themselves back into the game, were creating chances, got the equaliser. And then it all falls apart with just abysmal defending. And it's so frustrating because when you've got the tallest player on the pitch, (laughs) who is notorious for being very good at scoring goals from corners and scoring with her head, you've got to make sure she is probably your prime focus for defending this corner. And you lose her entirely, you leave her completely unmarked. And it's such an easy goal that I think if I was a Brazil fan, that would leave me absolutely gutted, Becky.
2: As they were taking this corner, right, as the as the French, French player is preparing to take this corner, I was looking at Wendy Renard and thinking... Gosh, she is just so massive. She is like towering over the rest of these players. And that's what I was thinking of as they're taking it. And it's just like, it, is that obvious? Like wh- <laughs> why on earth are you not... It looks like, you know, <laughs> you know, in Father Ted where he's like big, far away. It's like that. That's how I was looking at her. Like she's so much taller. Um, So it's just like inexplicable that nobody would be marking her on a corner. I don't understand how you can make a decision like that it's just, it, like you deserve to concede at that point you know
0: you know how people on twitter are always like we need more research into acl injuries <laughs> for me my my theory that i'm my phd thesis is we need more research into bad defending and why it's happening at corners especially because Today of all days, I was really, it's an epidemic. And we were talking about this in the WSL season with Jilly because we have seen some bad defending across the WSL this season. But my God, it is a
2: disease. It's ridiculous that they're not marking her because she is so much taller than everyone else. It's not even like it's a header that no one else could have reached. She has to like head it down. So it's just, it's not even about her really being that tall because like sometimes you're just like, well, it's Wendy Renard. She's going to get up there. She's going to score from her head. This one, it's like you you played yourself into this because she is just completely unmarked.
1: I also want to add that having seen Wendy Renard size up to Millie Bright before Millie Bright got injured, but in that first leg of Leon Chelsea, I was shocked that Wendy Renard did not come across as tall once she was next to Millie Bright as like her aura <laughs> gives off which I think also is important to bear in mind in the bad defending. I think it's easy to be like, Wendy Renard, she's massive. And she is very tall, but maybe not as tall as we think. Stick Rafa on there. That's not going to be that much difference. Rafa's pretty big.
2: I would absolutely love to see Jesse Park Humphreys stood next to Wendy Renard. (laughs) Oh
0: my God. I need to see it. Do you think um, a bit like those people, like who the, the classic gag where like you have two people on each other's shoulders in a trench coat? Do you think and Do you I, Jesse and I, like combined,
1: <laughs>
2: yes. would be
0: would yes, be as famously, tall as Wendy Renard? Flo
1: is not that much taller than
0: me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Wendy Renard is back. what ten foot six. So, so you're that, that the, you're sense.
2: Jesse, you are the antithesis of Wendy Renard. Is she has tall energy, and you have tiny short energy. Guy energy.
1: So next to each other, we might not look that... No, we would look different.
0: (laughs) You would look different. When it comes to this group, Group F, we've got France now on four points, Brazil on three points, both of them, you know, they they haven't secured their place in the round of 16, but they're definitely in a good place. Jamaica and Panama, that's happening as we speak. It's nil-nil. So, you know, we'll catch up on that when we're next on... The pod, but it, like that group, Jesse, is, is looking still pretty tight and exciting going into the final round of games where you've got France taking on Panama, which is a, a nice one for their last game. But that Brazil Jamaica game could be a pretty interesting finale to this group.
1: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this result affects Brazil, I think, particularly because obviously there was so much hype off their, justifiably, off their initial win. But I think equally it'd be justifiable to say there was probably disappointment off the way they performed tonight and they had an opportunity to really have not only getting out of this group but also topping this group in their hands and they didn't throw it away because it was It was almost like they didn't really like turn up to compete for it. But yeah, it, it will be interesting to see. I mean, I guess it will potentially depend a lot on how Jamaica-Panama goes. I think if, if Jamaica don't win tonight... It's hard to talk about it from here, but like, then maybe that that game won't feel as important. Um, But if Jamaica have something um, big to play for, and with Bunny Shaw back for that game, who I'm sure will feel like has missed out on playing tonight against Panama... um, yeah, it, it could potentially be a tough one. And we could be going from being like, Brazil are one of the most exciting teams at this World Cup to being like, Brazil around.
2: It's just like Australia. Yeah. Like, our predictions beforehand being like, they're going to be great. And then, oh, could they go out in the groups? You just never know what's going to happen. And that's are we fun. stupid?
0: Maybe. <laughs> no, it's we can't. We, we are really intelligent. We can't do anything about the football gods. They decide... What they want to do, it doesn't matter what we say; they they'll just do their own thing. If
1: these countries aren't going to play how we've told them they should play,
0: that's not <laughs> our fault. It's not. It's, it's not, not that, on our exactly. Hands. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. There was another massive game today as Sweden blasted Italy. So let's talk about that after this. Well, this was an Italian disaster class that led to an absolute meltdown on the timeline, uh, which was so. which was really exceptional. Uh, uh, we We had a, a Twitter spaces kickoff, and I'm not sure uh, if how many people have seen this because it definitely d- depends on how much Elon Musk wants to pump your algorithm. but um, we had a Twitter space kicking off that was a complete sort of assessment. Of uh, Italian uh, manager. How would you know? Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question, actually. Um, but It might not have been about the football at all. <laughs> I mean, the hashtag for the Twitter space was <laughs> Milena Out, which of course um, mm. is referring to... She's going out tonight. Italian That's manager Milena Bertolini, who is uh, public enemy number one on the Italian Twitterverse. Um, and I think that, like, Becky, you do know Italian, so maybe you can give us a little summary of what went down. I knows such little italian <laughs>
2: it was really uh, it hurt me because i did italian lessons for a year and understood like two sentences something i did understand they said the kid that played yesterday but i don't know what they were saying about her so we think that's all i can give we you we think it- dragoni do we think probably the kid well, maybe could be any of them. They're I'm so sure young. Said, I'm sure they said I'm sure they said yesterday evening. <laughs> oh, Guys, okay. why did we not
1: get Carlotta as a guest? Like this would have been the obvious <laughs> I solution. Know. You, can you tell us
2: exactly what was happening? I heard um mamma mia a few times. <laughs> wow, um, like Italian people actually which... say that?
1: Yeah. Wow. It's
2: like French people actually do say oh la la as well huge more 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 news Incredible. as we have it <laughs> um
0: yeah so this disaster class and twitter italian twitter meltdown obviously happened after Sweden beat Italy 5-0 and three of those goals came from corners two of them from Amanda Illestat. and yeah it was it was defending is dead rip tm because you they just kept doing the same thing again and again and i think that was it Two or three goals in the space of like 11 minutes, as well, um, a complete collapse from Italy. And what's frustrating, I think, Jesse, watching this, is that for the first 10 minutes, let's say, Italy were actually kind of on the front foot and playing fairly well. And then that goal, the first goal that they conceded, uh, it just was from then on, uh, that was the first Illustret header, not long before half time, that just. Completely, kind of, you know, made them go into a bit of a meltdown.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. I will say, I don't think Italy were like good. I just think they brought the chaos to Sweden, and then Sweden couldn't really deal with that, and then Sweden had to rely on corners, which actually we saw them have to rely on against South Africa. And I do want to give John Anderson a lot of credit because. That gal does a good corner. Like They were very good deliveries. The defending was bad, but the deliveries were good. And I was writing about England today and about how they're obsessed with crossing in. And they are bad at it. And they should all go and watch John Anderson because she's doing it very, very well. Um, but yeah, the, the collapse was pretty spectacular. But I did feel a little bit sorry for Italy. Because I don't think they did like a massive amount wrong,
0: uh, Jesse. Felt- Jesse, no, the the Italians are going to come for you on Twitter Spaces if you say that. The, the, it, this is a this is real Armageddon here. We can't be we can't be saying we they were a mess. Come on, you can't like uh- they were a mess. But I
1: think in terms of like the opportunities that were created from to be three 0 down, like I don't think. They did so much bad. Do you know what I mean? No, you're gonna disagree.
0: Um, I, I I do have to say I disagree only because what's worse is that they didn't like I, I agree with you in a sense that yes, they didn't do that much wrong, but that's almost worse to then concede that many goals by by being so kind of pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> does, that, does, does, that, does that make sense I just feel like the opportunities that Sweden created weren't even that good but the put it in the mixer chaos energy of Jona Anderson just sticking in a brilliant ball and seeing what happens was enough to disrupt them entirely I think that listen Chelsea have is, won leagues off that so <laughs> and that's what I'm saying like that, that's why defending is dead TM because people can't deal so, with the most basic things we're agreeing that they're
2: a mess. We're just kind of disagreeing over whether they're a lovable mess or not.
1: <laughs> Listen, I I'm, I'm very anti-Bertolini, so that's fine. Like, I will get on board that train. <laughs> I just thought their actual performance wasn't, you know, 3-0 down at halftime worthy. Mainly because, actually, maybe this is the key. I didn't think... Italy were like fine I thought Sweden were pretty bad actually I feel like I didn't th- Sweden, I didn't think Sweden didn't deserve to be thrown up maybe that's I where was... my energy is coming from
0: that's exactly what I agree with because I don't think Sweden were that good at all I th- we, we spoke after that first Africa game with uh, Amanda Zazar about how Sweden went back to the foundation and back to the playbook which always works for them which is set pieces and obviously that was killer for Italy today but that's what's so frustrating, and why I think that Italy' result and performance was so sort of shocking and embarrassing is that Sweden didn't even play that well. It was just such a kind of hapless, scrambly. When when you see a football match where you you feel like these players just don't know how 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 at all to solve the problem, and are probably not getting a lot of help from their manager either. You know, where it's just kind of everyone looks a bit lost. They're sort of running around, um, chasing. Anything that's running, whether it's a ball or a player, a a cross is coming in and they don't know what to do with it, almost running into each other. It's like calamity kind of comedy football. And I think that's why I was so frustrated and I can sympathize with the Italian fans of being so angry is because there was no one getting a sense of control. And then you've got clear leaders on the bench, whether it's Girelli or Giacinti who are, aren't there and probably the players and Sarah Gamma left at home, probably the, the, the players who are most likely to kind of grab a hold of people and say, right, like, let's sort this mess out. Let's be organized. Gamma especially when it comes to defending corners. So without any of that, it's like, well, there's not really any hope. And the, the way that the cameras panned to these baby-faced players sort of like, oh, I'm scared, was just so honestly bleak. And um, yeah, I'm Milena I'm, out. Hashtag Milena out. Let's do it.
1: My key question is, who will score more goals in the WSL next year? Stina Blagstinius or Amanda Ilster?
0: I thought you were going to say Alessia Russo or Amanda <laughs> Ilster, and I was about to just say, wow, huge hot take. But good question, very good question. Amanda Ilster is going hot for this golden ball. Three goals, she's ready. And if, if Sweden keep just pinging in crosses and corners, then why the hell not? So one of the other big stories of the World Cup has, of course, been about Sam Kerr, the news today that she will be returning for Australia's final game against Canada. Earlier today, we caught up with Australian football journalist Samantha Lewis to ask her about Kerr's return and also what it's been like for the Matildas these last few days. Samantha Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to chat to you because we've been wanting to chat to you really way before the World Cup. And you are very, very busy woman as the, you know, go to Australian women's football journalist. So thank you so much. I mean, firstly, I want to ask you about Sam Kerr because that is the big story of the day. She has said in a press conference that is she is ready to go for the Canada game. But I feel like it still comes with a little bit of a question mark right now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The news today that Sam Kerr uh, is going to be available, quote unquote, for the Canada game came as incredible existential news for most Matildas fans, I think. Um, But the immediate sort of question after that is to what extent is she going to be available? Does that mean that she's fit enough to start? Does that mean she's fit enough to come off the bench? How is she going to be used? Um, And if she is not available to start, what is that going to look like for the rest of the team? Um, so, but, uh, but, uh, you know, she's the Matildas, I think have really struggled without her on the field, not just because of her quality, but just because of her leadership and what she does to opposition players as well. Like she's one of those strikers who just has this incredible gravity around her that, automatically sort of shifts the mindset of any defenders who are tasked with trying to stop her and i think the great threat of the matildas is actually what happens when sam kerr uh, creates space for her teammates and Caitlin Ford is probably the best example. Ford has become one of the most dangerous attacking weapons that Matildas have had thanks to her relationship with Sam Kerr on the field. So without Kerr there over the past two games, you've really, really noticed how much the Matildas have changed as a result of not having that focal point there. So her coming back um, to even if she's on one leg, I think Matilda's fans are going to be thrilled because <laughs> um, she just has this gravitas. She has this energy. she has has the leadership, um, and she has the, the sort of the vibe as well. She has the confidence. She has the thing that I think the Matildas have been lacking a little bit in this World Cup ever since she went down suddenly uh, the day before the game, uh, the opening game against the Republic of Ireland. So, yeah, the news that she's going to be returning for Canada, which is now a must-win game, is uh, just miraculous.
0: And she was really coy, understandably, in the press conference about how she might be used in that game. But did you, from being in the room, from chatting to, for, to Tony Gustafsson and others, did you get any sense of whether that, you know, we'll see her from the start of the game or whether it is going to be a substitute appearance?
3: Well, Sam Kerr said during the press conference that she's not going to give any more information because she doesn't want to give Canada any more information specifically. And uh, thinking back to when uh, she was made unavailable for the Republic of Ireland game, the opener, the justification for why that was kept so secret is because they didn't want the Republic of Ireland to know that Australia's best attacking weapon was not going to be available and Tony Gustafson said uh, after the game even that the Republic of Ireland's game plan was built around Sam Kerr so you can imagine that Canada having played us more recently uh, with Sam Kerr available has probably done something very similar so um, I do think it's a bit of 4D chess a little bit of mind games from Gustafson and from Kerr as well to not give too much away Um, and then hopefully are are able to sort of spring a bit of a surprise because, uh, like, that's kind of what we need at the moment. Like, the Canada game was always going to be the hardest game of this group for us. And now coming into it in the position that we're in, um, needing to win it and having seen the way that Canada performed, particularly in the second half against the Republic of Ireland, where they really needed a result, uh, we're sort of reminded that, oh, crap, these actually are the Olympic gold medalists. We kind of forgot about that for a little while. Um, it's going to be like the, the added pressure of that, I think, is is really, really significant. So something special really needs to happen in this game if the Matildas are able to get all three points and, and go through to to round 16.
0: Yeah, well, on that Nigeria game, it was an amazing match for the neutrals, but not ideal if you're a Matildas fan and obviously being the the co-host of this World Cup. So tell us, and I mean, I could expect the answer here, but tell us how that result went down in Australia.
3: Yeah, look, it was a really weird game. Um, the fallout from it, I think, has been really pointed because on the one hand, the Matildas seemed to play well in some areas, but then they played really badly in others. And I think a a lot of folks who have been following this team for a while sort of saw, Um, flashes of the Matildas of old, namely a Matildas team that panics under pressure, a Matildas team that's prone to absolute clangers like the the third goal that Nigeria scored because of that mix-up between Alana Kennedy and Mackenzie Arnold and a Matildas team that sort of resorts to long bombs forward when they don't know what else to do. Um, that was a, a, a sort of a, a style of football that we had all hoped that Matildas had grown out of under Tony Gustafson. Um, but it sort of came flooding back in when, when the team was up against the wall when Nigeria were ahead. Um, and I think there was a lot of panic in that and there was a lot of um, almost like PTSD from a lot of fans because we, we thought that we had been over this. We thought that we'd gotten better. We thought that we had developed uh, an ability to manage games much easier than the way that we managed this one, um, particularly the end of the first half after we scored and then immediately let them back in. So the fallout from it um, for, for those who follow football has been really, um, really negative it's, lots of people have been incredibly critical, particularly of Tony Gustafsson and his uh, his use of substitutions and his use of um, particular players in particular positions. So yeah, so at the moment the the community is kind of divided between those who feel very almost vindicated in their long standing doubt of Tony Gustafsson and those who are just clinging to hope that the the team are able to sort of ease back into almost their underdog mentality, which is something that they haven't had for a while. But it's a it's a position that they really thrive in, and we saw that during the Tokyo Olympics. So I think coming into this Canada game, the team are going to be um, angry. They're going to be um, fueled by how disappointed they all were with their performance against Nigeria, and they're going to come out led by their captain, whose tournament. This really should have been.
0: Um, I mean, on that on that Canada game, in terms of we Sam Kerr coming in, Philip Gibson's asked on Twitter if she is coming in, say starting lineup, or you know we wait and see. What does that mean for the rest of the team? In terms of is Van Egman going to drop out? Is Fowler going to drop out? What do you see the changes coming for that game? Because it sounds like fans want to see a lot of changes. I
3: think what we'll see if Sam Kerr starts the game is Caitlin Ford will probably be moved into the number 10 role, more of an attacking midfield kind of position, which is actually where she thrives. And I don't think we've seen the best of Caitlin Ford in this World Cup so far because she has had to play either as a winger or as a nine in the absence of Kerr. One of the things that Gustafsson has really emphasised is with this team and the players that he's been using, he's been really trying to capitalize on the chemistry that they already have and Kerr and Ford have the best chemistry of any two players in the team. So having them back on the field together, I think is really, really important. So if Kerr is able to start at center forward, I think Ford will be sitting right behind her. And that also means we'll probably see a shift in formation as well back to the 4-4-2 that really Um, maximizes the chemistry between those two players. And we saw um, in a couple, a couple of games ago in the um, sort of preparation friendlies that the Matildas played before the tournament that Ford um, is able to like her best sort of spurts are when she is able to turn on the ball and run at center backs with Kerr peeling off either side, creating space for her to have shots through central channels. So I think we'll probably see that. And then that perhaps means that Mary Fowler will be pushed to the bench. Um, because at the moment our midfields um it, it it's it, it cannot function if it doesn't have Katrina Gori and Karu cross together. I think those two players at the base of midfield are absolutely sensational. Um they are on a string with each other all the time and they they complement one another in really beautiful ways. So I think yeah it, it'll be Fowler for me who drops to the bench and then comes on as an impact substitute. And we've seen her ability to do that time and time again. Um and honestly that's kind of what we need. We need we need more um, more firepower off the bench because as we saw against Nigeria, Gustafsson didn't quite trust what he had left on the bench after all those injuries took out a bunch of players. So, yeah, I, that, that's the change that I would make.
0: And Sam Kerr's obviously had a huge impact on this team, her absence, but do you think there's an ele- element of the pressure as well just shifting now that the reality of a World Cup in their country has sort of set in because – it felt like there was a much more freedom to the way that they were playing and and joy and fun in the lead up to this World Cup. And obviously missing Sam Kerr will change how you play considerably. But it just also feels like now everything's just become really tense when it, and maybe that's just the the pressure really hitting home for them of how important this World Cup is.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Spot on. Um, I I think it's all well and good to say that you're blocking out the noise and that you're just taking it game by game and all those cliches that we hear footballers talk about. But this team has been waiting for this moment for three years. They've been preparing for this for three years. Every single thing that they've done has been leading up to this. And you know you you really felt it i think in that opening game against the republic of ireland that was in front of 75,000 people and millions more watching at home you really felt the players sort of not not shy away from it. They but they didn't quite sort of barrel through the moment the way that you wanted them to, or the way that they had spoken about being able to. I don't think they quite have that mentality just yet, in the same way that say, a USA does, or maybe even a Germany does, or an England does. Because they've never had a moment like this before. These are the biggest crowds they've ever played in front of. And You know, I think the media, um, particularly over the last six to eight months, has has played a really big role in terms of raising the expectations around this team. Um, A number of high-profile journalists have, you know, come out and confidently said the Matildas can win this World Cup, which... You know that's that's a huge ask when you're you know you're a team that has gone through everything the matildas have gone through and when you look historically at the fact that only one host nation has ever won the world cup when they've been hosting it, and that's been the usa so you know all of this stuff piling on and on and on on, the, on these on these players shoulders i really think has started to suffocate them a little bit. And what I'm really worried about is that if they don't perform well against Canada and we don't get out of the group, it's going to be a really uh, monumental collapse of faith around the team. And it's going to affect the mental health of so many players, so many staff members, so many people have been working so hard, but it's just that we've built them, we've built this pedestal so high that it's it, 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 there's pretty much no other way other than down. So that, that's my big fear.
0: I mean, on that, we've had a couple of people ask on Twitter about the legacy, if the unthinkable happens, and worst case scenario, they don't beat Canada. We know that Australia has a funny relationship with football. It's a really fast-growing sport, especially women's football, but it really has its peaks and troughs with those moments that Australia make the World Cup. And the A-League men's and women's has really struggled, I think, to retain interest and retain crowds. So, I mean, what do you think the legacy would be in the immediate and the long-term worst-case scenario they don't get out of the group?
3: Yeah, that's a it's a big question. Um I I think that if the Matildas don't get out of the group it will definitely affect the not not necessarily the interest but sort of the I guess the the conversation around the Matildas, the conversation around the national teams um but only in some parts of the community. So this is the funny thing about Football in Australia. There are people who are absolute nuts for it, who watch things like the A leagues, they watch the national teams, they watch the state based leagues, they've been watching it for years and years and years. Then you've got your more casual fans who sort of watch the national teams when they're in big tournaments and they watch, say, the Premier League. And then you've got people who are just sports fans who watch basically whatever is on. And so the level of conversation and expectation um and and all that sort of stuff amongst those tiers of people is very very different so when we say like what's going to be the legacy it's really hard to sort of paint a broad picture considering how different all these pockets of people are but for me the legacy of this tournament is actually not entirely hinged on the Matildas. And the reason I say that is because having watched all these other games, seeing 25,000 people turn out to watch South Korea against Colombia on a Tuesday, which is a work day at like midday, you know, these kinds, these the rest of the games actually are the thing that's going to I think enhance the legacy of the tournament. And you know, Football Australia they've got this big legacy plan and all these different pillars that they want to hit and blah blah blah. But for me the, the biggest legacy that I think this tournament can leave is actually like reminding Australia that we are a football country. Football is the biggest participation sport at grassroots level, but we don't think of ourselves that way. So for me, it's that sort of cultural piece i think of actually telling and retelling the story to ourselves about who we are in the context of the global game.
0: Yeah, i love that piece that you wrote for for abc about about the fact that this this tournament is really representing as well the diversity of australia and how when you go to every game and i think the 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 brazil france game being the perfect example you know that you've got yeah. such rich cultures represented and it is also sort of showcasing a new Australia which is really exciting um for for a lot of people in the country to know that you know this is actually going to be an amazing moment regardless of how the national team does I mean give us a taste of well, Becky and I aren't in Australia yet but will be soon give us a taste of how much world cup fever there is like is it is it a case of you know every single supermarket you go in there's world cup merchandise everyone's watching it everyone's talking about it in the cafes and the restaurants because it's really hard to get a sense of that until you're there and i think with the euros we only really got like like euros fever probably for the nation towards the semi-finals and the final so where are australia now with world cup fever in general
3: I think it sort of depends on where you are. The the issue with this tournament being held in Australia and New Zealand is that it's just a problem of size. Like our country is so huge and some of the host cities are also absolutely massive. So, you know, if you're in, say, Sydney, probably the biggest host city of the lot um, on a game day, You need to sort of be where the stuff is, and that's not everywhere. You know, you need to be around Darling Harbour, around sort of the Harbour Bridge and the Sydney Opera House, or you need to sort of be around the stadiums. Um, But one of the things that Sydney's done really well is they've created uh, the, the fan festival right smack bang in the middle of the city, which is huge. It's big and it's lit up. There are few screens everywhere. I was there earlier tonight to watch the the Italy Sweden game and there were thousands of people. There are food trucks. There's like, there are concerts, there's heaps of stuff that's going on. So on the ground, I think when you know where to go, the fever is, is, is amazing. Um, And being up in Brisbane as well on game day for the Matildas game against Nigeria, you couldn't turn a street corner without seeing someone wearing a Matildas jersey. So yeah, I think I think on on game days where the Matildas are involved, it's like at its absolute boiling point. But there is a really, there's a really good simmer across all the different cities I've visited so far that this is a major tournament that's here. But I think the big challenge for Australia is that you know, we, we love us. We love a big event. We love an Olympics, you know, we love a world cup, but it's really about maintaining the interest when the circus rolls out of town. I think that's the going to be the big question for Australian football going forward is how do we actually capture particularly all of these new fans who are coming to women's football for the first time, just because they're like, Oh, it's a major event. Let's go and find tickets. You know, let's go and see what's going on and, and find a way to really channel all of that energy, all of that interest into ongoing returning fans particularly of the domestic leagues
0: yeah well I can't wait to get out there Sam thanks so much for joining us and good luck on Monday I hope we might speak to you again after the Matildas get it done because I certainly feel like it would be such a shame if they drop out of this tournament early
3: it would and wouldn't it be such a story if they were able to do it if they were able to come back from the circumstances they're in now and to actually win and get through to the the uh, the knockouts yeah it would be miraculous so fingers crossed
0: Great to hear from Sam there about Australia. I am feeling quite sad about Monday. I don't know about you guys, sad and stressed because I think it will be pretty miserable if they get knocked out. And also Sam Kerr obviously wasn't involved in those first two games. So for them to potentially not get through and then Sam Kerr not to have her moment in this World Cup, having missed two games, I just, yeah, I feel absolutely gutted at the prospect. I don't know about you guys.
1: Um, I feel good now, Flo, because you're a jinxer, so you saying that it's really sad it's not going to happen. means <laughs> She's going to score an amazing hat-trick. I'm mainly pissed off that I'm going to Ireland Nigeria and so I'm going to kind of miss the Australia calendar game. But I'm excited obviously that there is something riding on it. My worry was that the game would be meaningless um, and I am excited to, to get to see Nigeria play again. Uh, I'm just sad that I really, really wanted to see Sam lead out Australia. And we might not even get it. We might not even get it in the Canada game. Who knows? Um, And we might not get it at all in this World Cup. Don't say it. Don't say it.
0: No.
2: I think we will. I am choosing to be optimistic.
1: Yeah, Canada have been boring.
2: They are
0: boring, Sam. Like,
2: come on, easy. It's fine.
0: You'll be fine.
1: Samka has the biggest vibes of everyone on both those teams so
0: yeah Yeah. talk about tall energy that's the tall energy you need right there my worry is because of this injury
2: even if they do get through to the knockouts even if she scores a hat-trick we ain't seeing a Sam Kerr backflip. it's too risky at this point
1: Mm, point. that's my biggest concern we had it at Wembley that was enough for me personally (laughs) and I don't want her to get injured because I'm stressed about Chelsea next season (laughs) I would like to see it on the world stage, but... Yeah, agreed. You know, I can't have everything. Why don't you believe English football is the global stage? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's talk about the other big news that came out not long before we started recording. Kira Walsh has not torn her acl party time huge news not only because it thanks it thankfully puts an end to the acl discourse for another day another 24 hours i mean i just did a big twitter thread after that news about acl for god's sake becky I've, i've reignited sorry um because there's nothing more exhausting than acl discourse on twitter So we get a little breather there, but also it's obviously really positive news for England. She is also staying in Australia, staying in camp to uh, aid her recovery and is going to be assessed as the tournament continues. She's definitely out for the China game. I would say it's probably... Extremely optimistic to think that she's going to return this World Cup, but you never know. But it's just a sigh of relief in general, I think, for England because, and for just like women's football as a whole. Because I, for one, could not do with another one of these bad boys coming anytime soon because it's just exhausting. And obviously, ACLs are shit, and we've done a whole episode all about why they're shit and how we change it. Uh, but right now, um, you know, the the endless calls for research or whatever it may be are not gonna get us there, so anyway. I think it shows how, just how bad the situation is
2: that the FA had to come out and be like, it's not an ACL. Like there's there's no other injury in football that you would have to do that for. And you would, and in men's football you wouldn't, no one would come out and be like, he's not done his ACL everyone. So it just shows like, everybody is like, this is really bad at the moment. And also I think maybe putting out a statement to be like, she hasn't done her ACL, also adds into like the hysteria around it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's frustrating for the FA because as soon as there's one story that comes out saying it's not an ACL, then all other journalists jump on the FA saying, can we have a statement? Please tell us what's going on. Um, so I, I imagine they've kind of been forced into doing this and probably would have wanted to really keep it under wraps because in the past obviously with Leah Williamson's one and Arsenal like clubs normally do wait at least sort of like four or five days sometimes longer but I think it's the same with Pateus last year right it's like the hysteria and the obsession with especially when it's a big player that's so crucial to the team is it's just too much to bear and it does remind me of like you know when um, Beckham did his metatarsal, uh, Rooney metatarsal, and it was like that countdown until, it, you, will they be fit for the World Cup? And people were following them around, Beckham in his little Beckham boot being followed around by paparazzi. You do, that hysteria can build so easily, especially when it comes to English football, Spanish football, Brazilian football, where everything has just turned up that much higher. So I think it was probably a way to sort of like, let's just end the chat as much as we can shut this down. But then you open a whole nother world with, oh, well, might she come back before the end? Uh, but I'm just, yeah, I'm just relieved. And um, we've got to talk about uh, another story as well from today. Canada have a interim pay deal with a Canada soccer. It's not what they wanted. They released a statement saying, you know, they wish uh, they had a more complete deal for this for this, uh, this calendar year and uh, they're, they're waiting to continue ne- negotiations and they still don't feel like there's enough resource and support for major tournaments. Canada men said on Tuesday that they still haven't been paid for uh, the 2022 World Cup. Uh, So it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks for Canada Soccer, but there is at least some clarification for this team on their 2023 World Cup payments going forward, but it's still unclear about the rest of the resources that they are demanding from the uh, Canada Soccer Federation. Any more for any more, or shall I wrap things up? We should wrap up. We've been going for a while. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, there has been a lot, a lot to get through today. Obviously, more stories and news and updates as we get it. We're going to be off tomorrow, but we'll be back on Monday with a massive day because we've got those final round of games in that huge group with Canada, Ireland, Nigeria and Australia. Of course, we'll be back with that. And there's other games on Monday as well. Japan playing Spain, Costa Rica, Zambia. So for now... We will love you and leave you, but we'll see you all then.